If you guys have Bibles with you, please open them to Exodus chapter 7. Uh, we're in verses 1 through 13, and if you don't have a Bible, we always do have the text on the screen, and I'm sure that you all have devices capable of downloading multiple Bibles uh, in Greek. Actually, it wouldn't help you here. It's in Hebrew. So uh, before we get going, let's pray together. God, as we open your word this morning, I pray that, that you would speak through your word, that we would hear what you have to say, that we wouldn't just let this go in one ear and out the other, but that we would heed the message of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible has a term for someone who's in opposition to God. The term is hard-hearted. Hard-hearted is kind of like, it, it, it's not that you don't know the right thing, it's that you're resisting it. It's not a knowledge problem, it's a it's a response to that knowledge problem. Let me give you an example. Um, I asked my wife that I, if I could share this, and it's fine because I look terrible in it, in this story. Uh, so this is a few years ago. And, um, you know, those of you who have had a newborn know just how tired you are with a newborn, okay? And uh, for those of you who don't know, it's great, have a baby, um, it's, there's no problems at all. It's so cute. Uh, but yeah, you know, sleep is at a premium and you just kind of learn how to function on two hours of sleep. And, and, uh, and th this, this was our fifth child, of course. And, um, and, uh, she's, she still gets, she was up with us this week. Every, every night, we're still not out of it. A anyway, you didn't hear me say that. There was one night that was especially sleepless. And, and I'm, I'm kind of like a, when I'm tired, I attack. I go to the gym, I get real sweaty and geeked up, and I can get through my day on two hours of sleep. And so that was my plan. It was like early in the morning, and I'm coming out of the bathroom, really quiet in my workout gear, real quiet, going not, don't wake up Sharon. I see she's in the bed, and as I'm passing by, headed for the door of our bedroom, the blankets lift up, and Sharon's under there. She had this hunted look on her face. You know, she had not slept at all. And she's just like, please don't go to the gym. Just let me sleep. Tear. <laughs> now, I want to remind you guys that I went to seminary. I got my Masters of Divinity, and then I had to, like, be examined to prove that I actually knew the scriptures. I'm super expert on this stuff, right? Like, I know the verse. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also the interest of others. I know that. So I went to the gym. <laughs> it was leg day, okay? You don't skip leg day. What? Don't judge me. So that was hard-hearted decision number one. Knew the right thing, did the opposite. Got home. We immediately got into a fight. Did I ever mention we were both running on like two hours of sleep? And uh, I said to myself in that moment, you know what? You always apologize. You're not apologizing this time. I know what the scripture says about owning your own sin, right? And, and asking for forgiveness. 
MDiv, guys. So I refused to apologize. I said, no, you apologize this time. Hard-hearted decision number two. I go off to work, and a couple hours later, Sharon actually texted me and said that she was sorry for, you know, the, the fight we had and the part she played in it. And, you know, like, at that point, I, anybody who's ever opened a Bible knows, like, at that point, you, you just, you also repent, forgiveness, reconciliation, that whole thing. That's somewhere in the Bible, right? There's a verse or two. I waited three hours so that she would know how mad I was. And then I texted her back. Hard-hearted decision number three. You see, a lot of the time, our problems are not caused by deficient theology or lack of knowledge, but how, what we do with that, how we respond to it. Hard-heartedness is something that we just kind of slide into, right? And we may, I, you know, I told a somewhat funny story about it. Maybe you didn't think it was funny. I did. Um, but... <laughs> But we all get there, so we think it's no big deal because it's so common, right? But really look at hard-heartedness. What is that? What was I doing? I knew the Word of God. You could have read those verses to me in the moment. I still would have made the same decision. It's pride, isn't it? That's the, that's the essential. That's the tent pole that holds up hard-heartedness. Pride. Think about what you're doing, though. When, in, in particular, when I'm thinking of like, I know the word of God, yet I'm going to choose the opposite. I am elevating myself to be my own authority, to be autonomous, to do as I wish, not as God commands. Does that sound dangerously wrong? Think about what that is. It's trying to put myself in the place of God. I am the authority. I don't listen to him. This is going to sound dramatic, but it's actually true. When we are making hard-hearted decisions, we are actually trying to upend the fundamental relationship between creature and creator, trying to put ourselves in the place of creator. Boy, what seemed kind of like, oh, not a big deal. We all get hard-hearted. Actually, it's pretty dark, isn't it? And the thing is, when we are in a state of hard-heartedness, when we're driven by pride, I will make you one guarantee. Misery will follow. When we are hard-hearted, we're not repentant, right? We're not looking to own our own sin and turn away from it. What's someone like who's unrepentant? that person easy to get along with? That person sowing harmony wherever they go? No. They're sowing discord wherever they go. They're breaking relationships, breaking community, aren't they? Is that person who's hard-hearted merciful to those who fail? No. No, a hard-hearted person is harsh and condemning, right? You've got a puffed-up idea of yourself, and you make yourself into the judge of all people, letting them know just how short they fall. 
hard-hearted person is a little quicker to anger, aren't they? Aren't you? <laughs> aren't I? When I'm in a state of hard-heartedness where my pride is in the foreground, where I'm not submitted to God, I'm not forgiving, I'm not merciful, and if you cross me, how dare you, here comes my wrath. You see how we're trying to put ourselves in the place of God? And when we do that, what happens? Misery follows. And so says the hard-hearted person, like John Milton, Satan in Paradise Lost, that it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And some of you right now are bristling like crazy on the inside because you just heard yourself described. And you realize that you are currently in a place of being hard-hearted, unresponsive to the Word of God, not wanting to submit. Well, the first person in the Bible that really gets hard-hearted and becomes kind of the model of hard-heartedness we're going to take a look at today in Exodus chapter 7. It's Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And in chapter 5 of Exodus, when Moses first went in and said, let my people go, thus says Yahweh, you know what Pharaoh said to the Word of God? He said, who's that? And that's not just a, I don't know, that's a, why should I care? He sees, you see, for Pharaoh, he didn't see God as worth listening to. And he saw himself as more in the place of God than the one true God. Right? And, and he would have been affirmed in that by his culture. He was something of a God emperor. So let's take a look at the word. Uh, in Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. It says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Now, again, the, this issue of does Pharaoh harden his own heart? Does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Uh, the answer is yes. We talked about this last week. It's impossible to pick apart exactly the causation there. But we have to say, as we see here, that Pharaoh is responsible for the choices he makes and that God is over Pharaoh, right? That, that's one of the things that's being communicated in these first four verses. God's given the whole what's going to happen. He's like, hey, Pharaoh's going to resist, but I'm going to do this, right? The, the idea is that God's people don't really know it. If you've been following the series at this point, they just they haven't met Yahweh yet. And so God's plan to reveal who he is to his people is that he's going to have a contest with the most powerful human in the world. It, it, it's, 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 it's kind of, um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, in the NBA, there's a saying uh, that, that when, you, when you posterize somebody, you guys know what that is? Some of you guys aren't sports fans. All right, here's the difference. So if someone throws down a dunk, that's a great dunk. That's not posterizing. Posterizing requires someone guarding you. So like this. Okay. Uh, so there's Kobe Bryant. 
This is the NBA Finals. And uh, now, to get up that high and throw it down that hard is impressive in and of itself. David Bell, I'm sorry, I searched for Joe Kitch and Larry Bird dunking on someone. I couldn't find any pictures. So just, just to throw down that dunk like during practice is impressive. You agree? But this guy down here, this poor schmo, that's Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard at the time and still is seven feet tall and at this time was the number one interior defender. That means guarding the hoop. He's the, he was the best there was in the game and Kobe did that to him. Get him a poster, right? So the idea of what the Pharaoh who holds God in contempt, God says, get in my poster, right? You, 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 like we're far more impressed and we know more about the, the ferocity and talent of Kobe Bryant by seeing Dwight Howard down there as opposed to if he wasn't. Is that making sense? That's the idea of what's happening. You can lose that. I promise I'll get a Celtic next time, Bill. <laughs> Maybe Kevin McHale. <laughs> But there, there's something amazing going on here. I don't want you to miss it. In verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. That capital L-O-R-D there, it's the name of God there. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, I, I want you guys to focus on the, they will know that I am Yahweh. That's a packed phrase in the Bible. It's not just that they're going to have knowledge. It's they're going to know who he is. That what's about to happen in the Exodus, these signs that God is going to do in Egypt, is not only a revelation so that his people can know him, but it's also a revelation of who he is so that the Egyptians would know him. There's a, a, a quote, the, the, the father of liberation theology, a guy named James Cone. I don't agree with him on everything, but, but he once said, and I think this is very appropriate, he said that the gospel is not just freedom for the oppressed, but for the oppressor too. We see here that, that God's concern is not only for his people, but for the people who hold him in bondage. That what he's about to do to this man who is resisting him, who is not listening to his word, who considers God beneath him, it is, it is not just for his own people, but it's so that then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Just quick poll, who's confused by that? Does that make any sense to anybody? Like, what's going on? You guys, okay, good. I'll explain it for Corey, because he's the only one who doesn't understand, apparently. <laughs> Kidding, we all are confused by that, right? Like, what's going on with the snakes? All right, so why is the beginning of the contest between God and Pharaoh snakes? It's a good question. I want to show you guys something. Uh, it is the headdress of King Tut, Tutankhamun. It is the, the death mask with the headdress on it. You see there? Uh, can everybody see what that is? Everybody? Snake. Okay? Two snakes in this case. But the, 
the snake was symbolic of the power of Egyptian royalty. Okay, it's like the Pharaoh's symbol, similar to like the American eagle or the Roman eagle, a lot of eagles out there, right? It's symbolic of the power of Egypt. And so if one snake is going to devour all the Egyptian snakes, it's, it's sort of a forecasting of what's going to happen between God, God and Pharaoh. It's a, um, I don't know what's the right word. It's, it's like a symbolic parable, right? It's not supposed to be that impressive in and of itself. It's supposed to be symbolic of what's going to happen between them. And for some of us, when you read about magicians, you went, huh? <laughs> There's magicians? Okay. So let, let's just talk about that real quick, because for some of us, that kind of tripped the, are, are we just reading a book of like primitive superstition here? You know, they believe in magic and magicians. All right, so real quick, I want to challenge one thing. Ancient people, and by the way, every culture before the Enlightenment believed there was such a thing as magic. Even today, outside of the West, there is widespread belief in magic, okay? So the ancient people who believed in magic, and this was like an official branch of study for the Egyptians and the Romans and the Greeks and all those folks, they weren't stupid, okay? We, we know that much. Read the ancients. Look at what the Egyptians built. It was a very technologically advanced, educated uh, civilization. They were not dumb. In fact, you and I would be hopelessly stupid in their world, okay? I, I want you to just imagine this real quick. We're going to pluck any of us and put us back in ancient Egypt, and we are going to look, like, they're going to be like, could you read this? I'm like, we're like, no, it's hieroglyphics. They're like, oh, he's illiterate. <laughs> or, hey, could you look at the stars and tell a planet from a star? Some of you maybe can, not many of you, <laughs> right? Can you, can you plant a stalk of wheat? No, I can't. Like, I'm not even fit to be a slave in ancient Egypt, you know? Um, and then you'd try to be like, oh, but no, we really are very advanced. I'm from a very advanced civilization. For instance, we fly. They're like, really? Show us. You're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I, I need a, there needs to be a machine around me. A what? A machine. It's like a thing. I get in it and I fly. It, you might sound just as silly. That, that would sound just as silly to them as like magic does to us, right? But we've had the experience of flying, and guess what? Somebody had the experience of magic at some point. This is not a bunch of idiots, okay? Even historians from the ancient world that are hard-nosed, that modern historians love because they're so skeptical, and they're like, this is all a bunch of nonsense. Don't believe that record. Right? These historians we consider very reliable blatantly talk about magic as though it was a real thing. So we could either come to the conclusion that everyone's idiots except the modern West, or there's something about reality we don't know that they did. At least hold it open. All right. But let's not miss the message of, the, of, of God's word here. Look at verse 13. Even after this, still Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 
and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the conclusion of this part is that Pharaoh hears the word, surely he gets the symbolism of, of what's going on, and he hardens his heart. His heart is hardened. He does not listen to God. For the reader, for the hearer, what is to be our response when we see this? Like throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a call away from hard-heartedness. There, there's, there's references back to Pharaoh, like, don't miss it like that, dude. It didn't go well. Instead, we need to submit our hard hearts to God. We need to submit our hard hearts to God. Why? It's because God is God and we're not. If, if hardening of the heart is, is letting pride push us into a place where we want to replace God, that is a wrong that is, that, is, that is flipping the fundamental relationship of our lives. When we submit our hard hearts to God, it actually puts us in our right place. Some of you guys are like, oh, he thinks we need to be put in our place. Yes, you do. That's exactly what I'm saying. You and I need to be put in our place. Think about this. When we are out of our right place, it's miserable. A child who has to parent their parent is miserable. They're in their wrong place. Make sense? If we, if we allow hard-heartedness to remain, to take over, to govern how we respond to God and how we live our lives, we, we're like that child trying to parent a parent. It is not our rightful place. And when we submit our hard hearts to God... It puts us in our right place. God is our creator. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. It's important for us to take our place as his creature, as those needing redemption and forgiveness. Right? If we're, if we're going to live within the purpose for which we're created, we can't try to usurp God's place. And so you're like, Wait, so it's okay for, like, God to have authority and God? Yes, because look at what God does in that place. He doesn't lord it over others. What did he do? He died for us. He doesn't take power and misuse it. We do that when we try and take God's place. And this is, there's another reason. It's really, really key for us to submit our hard hearts to God, it's because it changes how we interact with others. It changes how we treat others. When your heart is hardened, when you're not listening to the word of God and responding to it, when you're saying no to calls of mercy and forgiveness and submission to God, guess what you end up doing? You end up walking around exhaling judgment on harshness on people. You know? That's not what we want to be as God's people, is it? Could you imagine? Like, and this, this I, 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 I feel like I can't overstate how important this is. If God's people are walking around hard-hearted, 
and, and, and people's interactions with the church is it's a bunch of judgmental, merciless jerks, you know? Like, that's telling a lie about God, and that's not our job as God's people. Instead, if we are walking around exhaling mercy, if we're walking around and, 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 and what we're, we're spreading is acceptance and love and forgiveness and repentance and soft-heartedness, like, that's a beautiful thing, is it not? How do you know when you're becoming hard-hearted? Because it's something that happens so gradually <laughs> that uh, it sneaks up on you, right? You just wake up one day and, oh, I don't want to listen to what God has to say. I'm really reluctant to go to prayer. Not sure why. It's because you're hard-hearted. It's because I'm hard-hearted. <laughs> One of the best bits of applied theology I've ever heard was in our community group. She's not here, to, here today, but Emily uh, Nay Presley, now Piquel, she said, I want to... I want to quote her correctly because this is taught. This is this is just so Instagrammable. She said, you know, something about uh, when when I'm seeing with the gospel on people, I see people as broken instead of just stupid. That's what she said. <laughs> that was almost the proposition of this entire sermon. It's that that exactly right. When, when, when we find ourselves looking at people who are broken and we are just judging them, you know? I'm driving down the street, someone on, someone's stumbling across the street clearly high, and I'm just like, oh, get it together, man. Instead of seeing both the dignity and brokenness in that person. When we are out to prove ourselves right, and our spouse or other family members wrong, because that always goes great when we try it, you know? I always win. Someone says, you're right. Thank you for proving me wrong. I didn't see how wrong. Never works, does it? <laughs> when, I find, when I find myself holding grudges, someone's wronged me, and I'm killing them in my heart, that's a sign that my heart has grown hard that I'm not functioning out of the grace and mercy of Jesus. What do we do? Well, the, 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 the power to soften a hard heart is actually somewhat beyond us, you know? What we need to do is go to God's grace. In particular, I don't know if you guys ever do this, but like, I'll come across a bit of scripture. I'm like, I don't like that. I don't want to believe that. That's an indication that that is, that is a prime example of where I need to be aware of my hard heart and repent of it and say, you know what? I don't want to believe this. I don't like this. Yet it's God's word and I'm going to submit to it. Or there's a command, you know, you know done proper interpretation. It's a command that we know we have to follow. It's like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to give my money like that. I don't want to steward my sexuality like that. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to this. I don't want to... 
I'm just saying, yeah, God, I hear what you say, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to tell anybody I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> Beware of that. That is us trying to take God's place of authority. It's us hardening our heart against the word of God, and, and, and misery will follow. And so when, we're, when, we're, when we encounter places in God's word where we're not in submission, that, that's a, a perfect opportunity for us to say, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to submit to God because God is God. And when, when we actually do let ourselves be humbled before God, right? and God isn't calling us to this because it's like, well, you better listen, you know, and he just wants respect. We should respect God. But again, it's for our own blessing and benefit. Misery is going to follow to you and everyone around you if you're walking around unrepentantly hard-hearted. And blessing follows from us being in our right place, submitted before God and functioning out of the gospel. When God gets hold of a hard heart, he can transform it. In the Bible, there's a, a story, not well enough known, but it's a good one. It's the story of Naaman. If you ever get up in the book of 2 Kings, you'll see it there. Uh, Naaman was a, a Syrian general, not an Israelite, but you know, from a actually an enemy power, and he had carried out some raids into Israel, burned some things, that sort of thing. And Naaman was highly successful, very wealthy, well thought of, uh, but he was a leper, we find out. And he had tried everything to cure his leprosy, and nothing had worked. And one of the, one of the servant girls, who was actually an Israelite girl who he had carried off from Israel, said, hey, there, there's a prophet named Elisha, in Israel, go see him. He can cure you. And so Naaman, you know, and, and pride is his defining characteristic. He loads up wagons with treasure. If he's going to go and be healed, he's going to pay for it. He's not going to be a charity case. And so he goes to the house of Elisha. And Elisha does not come out to greet him. He sends out a servant. And he says, hey, heard you were coming uh, the prophet says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. You'll be healed. Naaman actually says this. He's like, wait, what do you mean? I thought the prophet would come out and, and call upon his God and wave his hands over me. And that's how he would heal me. That's how I want to be healed. With personal attention, with re the respect due to a personage of my stature kind of thing. You know, and I was going to pay for it. I'm not charity case. The pride. That was in Naaman's heart was preventing him from being healed. He actually, he says, he says, I'm going to wash in that stupid Jordan River. There's rivers around Damascus that are way better. I'll wash in them. And he walks away. And his own servants said, are you really going to pass up the chance to be healed? He finally laments. He would have had to take off his, his ceremonial whatever he was wearing. And he had to humble himself and wash in the Jordan River. And he came out healed. And then the prophet came out to him. And Naaman said, can I still pay you? <laughs> right? And he said, no, I'm not going to accept your money. You're a charity case, in other words. And he said, well, then let me take two cartloads of dirt from Israel 
so that I could bring it back and build an altar to the one true God. Our pride and our hard-heartedness stands in the way of, what, of how God will heal us and transform us. If you find yourself hearing and resisting God's word today, this week, God calls us to submit our hard hearts to him. Not because he wants to make us servants or slaves, but because he wants to make us children. It's because he loves us and wants us to know his joy. In response to this, I want to invite up, this is our, our time of Lent. Every Sunday during Lent, we're doing a confession of sin, and then we're going to hear an assurance of pardon. I want to invite up uh, Mark Miller to lead us in our, uh, our confession of sin and assurance of pardon.